Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Paul Bazanas on the topic Cloning and Stem Cells, What's the Problem? This June 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Paul Bazanas is a University of Sydney science graduate who has spent the last decade working in biotechnology. There will be four sections to this talk, so you can count down. <laughs> the first section will describe stem cells, the various types of stem cells, what they are, and why scientists are excited about them. I'll try to keep this as short as I can, but it may be the biggest part of the talk. The second section of the talk will show some of the errors in how the media portrays stem cells, the myths and the hype. The next section of this talk will describe cloning, how it works, and why cloning is seen as, in, as important and why it's such a current topic. The fourth and last section of this talk will discuss some of the potential benefits of adult stem cell research, including discussing some of the clinical trials currently underway. Throughout this talk, I will pinpoint some of the ethical issues as they arise and point out the Catholic Church's position on these issues. What are stem cells? The cell, the cell, just alone by itself, not the stem cell, is the structural and functional unit of all known living organisms. Most of the 300 trillion cells of the body have completely specialised functions. For example, blood, lung, brain, skin or liver cells are all specialised and differentiated for their specific functions. And they do the job. By and large, they cannot do anything other than what they were designed for. Unspecialised cells. Stem cells, however, are undifferentiated cells or unspecialised cells, or otherwise blank cells. They do not have a specialised function yet because they have not differentiated into a specific type of cell, whether it be a blood cell, skin cell, or another type of cell. Foundation cells. Consequently, stem cells are the foundation cells for every organ, tissue and cell in the body. They divide many times. Stem cells divide many times to become other types of cells. Stem cells can have the capacity to keep multiplying many, many more times. There is much to learn, however. Scientists have learned much about stem cells over the last few decades, a phenomenal amount. And this is part of the reason for all the amazing advances we have. However, there is even more to be discovered in the future. Types of stem cells. Stem cells are usually classified as embryonic stem cells and adult stem cells. I say that because, unfortunately, it is not always consistent how they are referred to. However, this distinction between embryonic and adult is essential to understand, even if people use it incorrectly. However, some of the further terms that have been used in the media, which may sound confusing, are pluripotent. Embryonic stem cells are described as pluripotent stem cells. The reason being that they can supposedly become many different types of stem cells, possibly all of them. Adult stem cells are frequently described as multipotent because they can become many, but not quite as the embryonic stem cells or the pluripotent stem cells. This alternative, this alternative description refers to the potential of the stem cell to generate all the, all the different types of cells that are possible. I'll go into it a bit more briefly now. 
Adult stem cells act as a repair kit for the body and for replenishing other cells or fixing trouble spots or diseases. Adult stem cells are currently being used to treat many diseases and are currently in clinical trials for lots of these diseases. An example of some of the potential diseases adult stem cells can treat are various cancers, diabetes, stroke damage, osteoarthritis, liver disease, and the list goes on. A lot of these are currently being treated with adult stem cells. I'll, I'll mention this later, but embryonic stem cells are not currently treating any of them. However, some scientists believe that embryonic, human embryonic stem cells can be encouraged to do all these things. Drugs and medications. This is another area that people tend to forget about. Human cells, stem cells can be used to treat drugs without requiring an actual human subject. A lot of the time, these tests are done on animals. Only animals are not quite like humans, no matter how much people say they are. <laughs> Typically, this is done with adult stem cells at the moment. There are examples of cancer stems, stem cell lines that we've created with adult stem cells that can be used to test tumour drugs or, or drugs to combat cancer. New medications can be tested for safety on these cells. Research into genetic diseases. This is another big area that scientists are interested in. A stem cell can be used to study genetic diseases. If we can duplicate a genetic disease in vitro, meaning outside the body, then we may be able to better understand the progress of the disease and how to treat it. Research into cell growth. Studies of human embryonic stem cells may yield very interesting information about the complex events that occur during human de development. Studies into adult and embryonic stem cells may also reveal precisely how cancer works, and that is a very big interest today. Now I'll talk briefly about, stems, about embryonic stem cells. Human embryonic stem cells are stem cells that lead to the development of an embryo and further the development of the embryo eventually into a human baby. When used for research, these stem cells are extracted from a living human embryo. That is from a few days old up to 14 days. That is according to current legislation in Australia even the amended legislation after the recent debate. Currently, these human embryonic stem cells are extracted from spare or leftover IVF human embryos, which is an unethical situation in itself. But with this new legislation that has recently passed, scientists are now allowed to isolate embryonic stem cells and extract them from cloned human embryos as well. Also from cloned hybrid embryos. Typically this involves the destruction of the human embryo. Now embryonic stem cells are interesting because they are pluripotent. What this means is they have the potential to generate all the differentiated cells in the body. I say it has the potential because hasn't actually been proved yet. The idea is that embryonic stem cells will be encouraged to divide and produce adult stem cells, which will then become the cells that are desired. So it's essential to understand that the embryonic stem cells become adult stem cells that then produce cells that are required. 
embryonic stem cells seem to be able to divide for a longer time than adult stem cells under the right conditions. Certainly one of the right conditions is inside an embryo. Creating what is hoped to be an endless supply of raw material, drugs or medicines. This is one reason why drug companies are particularly excited about the prospect of embryonic stem cell research. And I can assure you that drug companies have been funding embryonic stem cell research. However, there are many, many negatives of embryonic stem cells, not least of all the ethical issues. Embryonic stem cells seem to work best inside the embryo. Outside the embryo, embryonic stem cells need to become, need to basically be 100% purely differentiated into adult stem cells and then into the cells that, that are desired. <coughs> For example, blood cells. But this is practically impossible. We've been trying to do this in animal studies. However, after 10 years of research, we still cannot do this in mouse cultures. And believe me, scientists have been trying. And one undifferentiated cell is enough to cascade and cause tumors. Since 1998, when researchers first isolated human embryonic stem cells, there have been no reports of a successful treatment for any human being using this type of cell. So for 10 years. And there is not simply anecdotal evidence for this. Most embryonic stem cell researchers say this themselves now, in spite of what you see in the media. Okay. <laughs> Professor Ian Wilmot was the scientist whose team was responsible for cloning Dolly the sheep. One of the things that he said is that using these embryonic stem cells would be pointless for therapeutic needs, for our therapeutic needs. And one thing you would need to do is to make sure that every single cell is completely undifferentiated. If it is not completely undifferentiated, one of these will cascade and cause tumors. So this is Professor Ian Woolman, whose scientific team claimed Dolly the sheep, who is seen as a god, if you will, in the scientific area. Embryonic stem cells now available for research are likely to be rejected by a patient's immune system, similar to how organ transplants can be rejected by the patient's immune system at the moment. However, since the possible rejection will be on a cellular level, the immunosuppressant drugs may very well be unable to solve these rejection problems. This is a serious issue. One undifferentiated cell will cause a massive cascade effect. So far, every single experiment done with embryonic stem cells has ended in failure. That's in mice. So uh, legally, legally, what they do with human embryonic stem cells is they typically use them on a, on a mouse model, which means that they put the human embryonic stem cells into a mouse for another animal. Because they've got a similar morphology, it basically means they're similar enough that they can do that. So they've tried that. They've tried various experiments putting human embryonic stem cells into mice. They've tried various experiments where they put adult stem cells into mice, and that has been quite successful. Embryonic stem cell research is unethical. I guess you all know this, but I'm going to be explaining why. They usually involve the destruction of numerous human embryos. Not simply one, but numerous human embryos. Furthermore, this is one point that the media consistently gets wrong. Every major textbook of human embryology and virtually every human embryologist states that fertilization marks the beginning of the life of a new individual human being. 
in I know in the media it says statements like, well, it implies that it is a fringe view that human life starts at conception. This is not a fringe view. The ultrasound pioneer Sir William Lilly said in 1967, from the moment a baby is conceived, it bears the indelible stamp of a separate distinct personality, an individual different from all other individuals. And some of you may have heard of Dr. Jerome Lejeune. He was discoverer of the Down syndrome chromosome. After fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into existence. This is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. Each individual has a very nice beginning at conception. The human embryo is a human being and a human life. This is frequently denied in the, in the, in the media and presented as a religious or ethical opinion. However, this is not religious dogma or personal belief. This is a scientific and medical certainty. There should be more people coming up with this. I'm not so sorry, saying this. Human embryos are human beings and they should not be destroyed. We can never allow ourselves to do destructive research on innocent human lives. There is a recent trend to define the human person as a type of human being who is worthy of legal protection. And consequently, there are human beings that are not worthy of legal protection, meaning uh, before a certain time. This notion of a person, however, makes categories of human beings, some of whom can live and some of them who cannot and are subject to our will. This usage of the term human person suggests that we really have not learned much from our history. However, if scientists really do want to work on embryonic stem cells, the reason why they want to work on it is because they are pluripotent. And I'll just briefly explain the differentiation issue here. Pluripotent means that their cells are completely undifferentiated, and that means that they have no function at all. Their only function is to become other types of cells, specifically adult stem cells. Adult stem cells are partially differentiated, meaning that they, they can't produce all, all the different types of cells possible. They partly, they're not back at the embryonic stage. They're, they're, they're multipotent. So they can produce certain cells, and they can even change back into pluripotent cells. So they're partly differentiated. They can produce more adult stem cells, or they can produce cells. A cell, just by itself, not a stem cell, is completely differentiated. This means it now has a very specific function, and it's not going to change. However, the reason why embryonic stem cells are interesting is precisely because they are pluripotent. However, scientists have managed to ethically induce pluripotency in adult stem cells in mice. They've managed to turn mouse adult stem cells back into mouse embryonic-like stem cells. They did this a year ago. A Japanese team did this, and um, everybody just ignored it. And then they did it again recently, and um, two US teams duplicated it, and everybody started saying, oh, that was great. Further, they tested these embryonic-like stem cells in a most practical way, which is very interesting. They injected these stem cells into a mouse embryo. And funnily enough, these embryonic-like stem cells contributed to the development of the mouse embryo. However, they were produced by, from adult stem cells, by inducing pluripotency in them. So they were completely undifferentiated. They went from partially differentiated to completely undifferentiated. And this is something that the adult stem cells cannot do in experiments. They cannot be injected into mouse embryos. Further, 
That's with mouse embryos. So why do we? So, oh, sorry, that is with mouse stem cells. Can we do this with human adult stem cells? It has been an argument used in the media. However, it was just a matter of time. And today, I read a paper in Nature, um, in Nature magazine, which is a pretty important magazine for scientists, in which a similar pr procedure was achieved in human adult stem cells. They did, they did exactly the same thing. So the human adult stem cells, which were originally multipotent, were now induced into a pluripotent state. I'm glad I read my email today, otherwise I didn't see them. Another, another point I might just make. When a scientist figures out how to control pluripotent stem cells, so the pluripotent stem cells are completely undifferentiated, if a scientist figures out how to make them go into precisely the adult stem cell they want and then become precisely the cell they want, that is going to be a unique and very interesting thing. The scientist is going to be immortalised in terms of fame. It's just another factor to keep in mind about what is driving every embryonic stem cell research. Okay. Adult stem cells, isolated from adult tissue. We all have adult stem cells in our bodies today. You may have gathered that from what I've been saying. And adult stem cells are constantly replenishing our cells all the time. For instance, our blood stem cells turn out 5 million cells per second. Blood stem cells are most often found deep in bone marrow. And they are the factories of the blood system. They continually make new copies of themselves and produce new adult stem cells to make every other type of blood cell. Red blood cells, white blood cells and platelets. This is why you can go to the blood bank and give blood and it will be replenished in three months time. This function of adult stem cells is the basis of bone marrow transplants. Many people in the media have said that adult stem cell therapies just don't happen at the moment. Bone marrow stem plants have been, it's a procedure that has been successfully performed since 1970. Actually 1950, but they perfected it in 1970. Furthermore, a very similar technique has been done since 1990, and that is peripheral blood stem cell transplants. Peripheral blood is not from the bone marrow. I understand extracting bone marrow is a very painful procedure. But peripheral blood stem cells is from the blood, so you simply give blood. I think it takes about half an hour to um, via an aphoresis operation, and they separate the stem cells. Until recently, only tissues like blood and skin were thought to regularly replace themselves. And so only blood and skin were thought to have stem cells. Now it seems that whichever organ researchers look at, they find stem cells, even when those organs don't use those stem cells very effectively, as happens with diseases and injuries. Like the brain or, or the pancreas, two examples where they don't think that stem cells are used very well. Stem cells extracted from the umbilical cord, the placenta, or even amniotic fluid are also categories of stem cells. They, it has been said they aren't in the media, but they are. It's a scientific definition. And our stem cells can be extracted ethically from all these sources. However, the placenta and the umbilical cart are all places rich in stem cells. And they've also been used in blood stem cell transfusion since 1990 as well. Supply of umbilical cords is pretty much unlimited, as we can guess. We can get a new cord from every newborn baby. 
And I've just added here, is it not ironic that while we are trying to destroy human beings in the early stage of development, the therapies that don't exist, that every new baby born is supplying us with the blood we need to do real therapies? And it's quite ironic. Adult stem cells typically do not become cancerous. It's very hard to make them cancerous. I talked about an adult stem cell that had been induced to become a cancer stem cell before. That was hard work. Adult stem cells taken from the same patients who receives a treatment of adult stem cells are not rejected because they are his. They belong to him. So they're not rejected. This is currently the ideal way to do adult stem cell therapies and is one immediate advantage of adult stem cells. However, there are at least a few types of adult stem cells that are not rejected when transplanted between different patients. This is very interesting at the moment. There is an Australian company called Mesoblast. I first heard about them when I received an investment, what I thought was spam, an investment newsletter a while ago. Mesoblast was mentioned as one of the up-and-coming companies. So I looked up Mesoblast. They are very interesting that they're an adult stem cell company. They are pioneering in this very area of stem cell research. And they're currently doing trials in this very area of using adult stem cells from one patient to another. Fewer steps are needed. Fewer steps are needed to produce adult stem cells that are usable in therapies. At the moment with embryonic stem cells, you need to do cloning. And I'll come to that later. Because the adult stem cells are significantly less likely to become tumours, they are a lot easier to manage. It's a lot easier to separate them. Furthermore, the process to cultivate adult stem cells is a lot easier than cloning. Some of the negatives. They are harder to extract. This has long been said about adult stem cells. We're finding that that is actually no longer the case anymore. We are discovering so much about adult stem cells like in how to extract them. This is barely an issue. Limited number of cell types. Adult stem cells can produce a limited number of cell types. This is because they are partially differentiated. <coughs> While collectively all the adult stem cells together can develop all the differentiated cells in the human body, in the past it was believed that a specific adult stem cell was believed to only be able to generate a limited number of cells in the body depending on the adult stem cell. However, there have been examples of adult stem cells, I guess, morphing into other adult stem cells. Recent examples of this idea being overthrown include blood cells, blood stem cells becoming neurons, liver cells becoming insulin, blood stem cells that can develop into heart muscle, which is a completely different type of adult stem cell. There is even a biotechnology company called Prime Cell Therapeutics, devoted exclusively to stem cell reprogramming. And this is precisely what they have been doing. Furthermore, since they create since they create these stem cells from adult stem cells, and they can create any adult stem cell, so they say, of the patient, I must say that this is this actually hasn't been verified with a paper yet. I think they're holding back because they've got a number of patents and so on. But these adult stem cells have got a higher genetic integrity than anything produced with embryonic stem cell research. The reason why is because if we're doing research on me and why there's a disease in me, they get my adult stem cell, which has got my genetic material at the moment. Even cloning is not a perfect genetic match. 
Okay, I thought I would briefly show you a couple of pictures. Just so you don't have to look at me at the moment. <laughs> okay. That is an estimate of what a stencil looks like. I think it actually is one, but it has been dyed red. This is in the eye of a needle. So it actually looks pretty large there, but that is actually quite small. I'll show you the next picture. Okay, this is a picture, an estimate of what embryos look like. This is at the eighth week. This is after the first couple of days. And a stem cell is smaller than that. Okay, so these are all embryos. And as you can see, they, this one seems to be fairly well formed at eight weeks. Okay, I thought I would show you this picture to, to describe a bone marrow transplant operation, just to give you some idea of how it is actually done. So the stem cell is extracted from the bone. The bone has got a whole bunch of stem cells for creating blood. It's extracted. And that's actually the name of it. Um, the, the stem cell is then cultivated in culture. And then you get a whole bunch of stem cells out of that. And then it is translated into a leukemia patient. Usually their immune system is destroyed by radiotherapy, I believe. And that's just a brief diagram showing how it actually differentiates itself. Multi-stem cell becomes a progenitor cell, which then becomes a red blood cell. However, that, that multiple stem cell can become other, stem, other cells, like white blood cells and platelets, but it knows to become a red blood stem cell. Part of the interesting area of research at the moment is that scientists don't know how the differentiation happens. So everyone's trying desperately to learn how this happens and get trained in the process. Which I might look at the next picture as well. Now this also gives you a brief diagram. Once again, I'm showing all these diagrams because I want to show how the differentiation works. Okay, so at the top, you have a fertilized egg. This is now a human life, a human being. It differentiates about two, four, six times. Could you um, read out the headings, the totipotent? Yep. Um, it differentiates into about uh, two, four, six or eight cells, and these are totipotent stem cells. I didn't talk about totipotent stem cells because I didn't want to... Um, it is not really relevant to the discussion at the moment because scientists are not using totipotent stem cells. However, this is the area in which um, identical twins are created within the body. Identical twins, if this splits into eight, I don't like to think of that, but I mean, it would be painful. If, if this splits into eight cells, there will be eight identical twins. Okay. This is the point at which embryonic stem cells are extracted, usually at the blastocyst stage, but it can be actually uh, from the fourth day to about the 14th day. Now, if they are extracted, at the moment, researchers um, extract the embryonic stem cells, which are pluripotent, of course, and then they culture them and, and they do whatever they want, I guess. However, if, if things follow the natural course, what will happen is these will differentiate into adult stem cells. These are the stem cells that were described before for the bone marrow transplant, hematopoietic stem cells. These are neural stem cells. These produce neurons and skin and mesenchymal stem cells, which basically is connective tissue, bone, cartilage, muscle, so on. So these will produce red blood cells, white blood cells and platelets. These will produce neurons and skin, and this will produce 
cartilage, bone, muscle, basically connective tissue within the body. Okay. So I briefly described the stem cell situation uh, within the media, as I said. Uh, first of all, it's important to note that Australia really is at the forefront of this technology. I don't know if we are doing, doing the best research in the world, but we certainly are up there. For example, in June this year, last month, the fifth annual conference of the International Society for Stem Cell Research was held in Cairns. The first time this meeting has ever been held outside North America. However, embryonic stem cell research is very much in the discovery stage, and so is adult stem cell research to a certain extent. Although we're using therapies with adult stem cells, we don't necessarily know how, how it all works. We have not always realised the full potential of adult stem cells in the past, and biotechnology is advancing very dramatically over the last few decades. Consequently, so as our understanding, we're discovering more and more therapeutic benefits at a very fast rate. And if you go to a site called Do No Harm or stemcellresearch.org, stemcellresearch.com, sorry, that's a Do No Harm website, they give a list of all the therapies that have been officially proved to have been worked to, to work with adult stem cells. And at the moment, they're up to about 73. But these are the ones that are officially being proved with clinical trials. There have been a lot more that are currently in trials. However, there is a lot of hype about embryonic stem cells. A lot of hype, as we all know. Embryonic stem cells represent a leap into the unknown. We have no idea what they're doing. And much basic biological work needs to be done before any clinical trials ever see the light of day. This is very important to note. Politicians have implied that clinical trials will happen tomorrow with embryonic stem cells. They'd be lucky if it happens in 20 years' time, I think. But I've already quoted from, from Professor Woolman, who, who talked about the well, impossibility of embryonic stem cells being used in therapies because of the differentiation problem. They differentiate too quickly in the tumours. They start from a completely undifferentiated state and they become tumours. However, even in the magazine Australian Life Scientist, he said in an article, stem cells back to the future, that's what it's called, in May this year, finding another source of pluripotent stem cells other than embryonic stem cells is an imperative, simply because the limited supply of embryonic stem cells will make it difficult to find cells to genetically match all patients requiring grafts. The reason why this is because every single patient would need to have an exact match. That means cloning for every single patient. Further, formidable technical challenges confront efforts to create self-stem cells. What I mean by that is adult stem cells via cloning. Simply doing that, simply creating adult stem cells in a consistent way via cloning is a formidable challenge, let alone the fact that they become cancerous. Now, some of you may have heard of Lord Winston. Lord Winston actually was involved in a television show recently about religion. So currently he's actually very well known in the media and in the public eye. He's current president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. He said, of course, the study of stem cells is one of the most exciting areas in biology. But I think it is unlikely that embryonic stem cells are, are ever likely to be useful in healthcare for a long time. I was concerned that parliamentarians, particularly in the House of Commons, 
have been convinced that it was just a matter of a few years before we are able to transplant stem cells and cure a lot of neurological disorders like Alzheimer's, for which I think is going to be a hugely difficult problem and probably completely insoluble by stem cells. That's Professor Winston. He also highlights the inability of embryonic stem cells in general and their remarkable propensity to produce abnormal numbers of chromosomes, genetic disorders. However, the recent article in Science Magazine in July 2007 is very telling. Once again, I'm glad I read my email today. Quoting from the article, In a sign that hopes for quick medical benefits from embryonic stem cells are fading, a company called Embryonic Stem Cell International, a company, a company that was established with FanFan Singapore seven, seven years ago, it was, in, it was, in, it was all, in all the papers, at least I saw it anyway, is halting work on embryonic, human embryonic stem cell therapies. Alan Coleman, a stem cell pioneer who until last month was a chief executive, said that investors lost interest because the likelihood of having products in the in the clinic in the short term was vanishingly small. Now, if investors lose interest, that's pretty telling. Robert Lanza, Vice President for R&D at Advanced Cell Technology. I should say a bit about him. He's actually responsible for a lot of outlandish statements about embryonic stem cells. He's supposedly at the forefront of embryonic stem cell research. He said, ESI's, Embryonic Stem Cell International's setback may dampen investors' enthusiasm for stem cell therapy. Well, it did, because the company lost business, lost money. In fact, I think it was bankrupt, but I think they're still working out of it. And then he said, what the field badly needs is one or two success stories. So that's an example of Robert Lancer, who's right at the forefront of embryonic stem cell research. There is even a PhD student at Sydney University completing her doctoral thesis examining the overhyping of stem cell research. She says, the overselling is a strategy to overcome obstacles in obtaining funding for your particular area of research. How it manifests in the public domain can be quite different to how it's presented in the scientific domain. That's not my experience. The messages presented to the, to the public are often very, often more optimistic than the more careful language of science. I can assure you, the language of science is not that careful. It's more careful, but I've seen some outlandish statements and even scientific papers. The obstacle in this case is ethics. That's what she's referring to. To see how much of an obstacle ethics is seen in, in the scientific area, we only need to look at the approach used in the Lockhart Review, which probably all of you are very familiar with. It's been mentioned in the media a lot. The Lockhart Committee consists of a group of eminent Australians, mainly scientists, appointed by the federal government in June 2005 to report on the regulations for governing, governing stem cell research. Professor Lone Skeen stepped in to chair the committee when Lockhart died. Skeen was given the task of publicly advocating the committee's main recommendation lifting of ban on cloning. She dismissed the view that human embryos have a special moral status and therefore is morally abhorrent to create and destroy them for research. However, what is more interesting is what she said. The committee carefully considered these moral arguments but could not justify prohibiting the technology on ethical grounds. We saw the issue as not so much should scientists be doing the research, but rather should they be prevented from doing the research. Now that's a very subtle distinction but she didn't say it for nothing. 
It changes the focus of ethics. Ethics is now an obstacle to research. As soon as ethics is seen as an obstacle rather than a virtue, it will pretty soon lose any meaning at all. Now, science has contributed to humanity in many ways and will do so in the future. We know this. We all benefit from what science has done for us. There are many benefits to humanity from our increased scientific knowledge. However, we should always approach the problem that affects humanity in an ethical framework. This is a must. Especially science, because science is moving so quickly. Rather than redefining ethics to fit our desired solution. Putting science above the constraints of an ethical framework is a dangerous philosophy. Remember, I also work in the area of science, and I enjoy working in the area of science. It's a great area to be working in. However, Nothing should be above an ethical framework. Anything that puts itself above an ethical framework is a dangerous philosophy. And some have called this philosophy scientism. This is becoming more and more seen in the public eye. Basically, this is a belief that scientific research is so valuable that it should be conducted at all costs, including human life. This is an inhumane philosophy, even if the final goal is to reduce suffering if we destroy our humanity in the process. Further, the media portrays the Catholic Church as anti-science and anti-stem cell research. This is done regularly. This is done all the time. I see it all the time in the paper. And all one has to do is to read comments on any stem cell related story in the press. For example, Anthony Sucker's article recently in the Australian about stem cells was clear and well written. And so, but some of the responses he received from it from those who objected to the article bordered on incoherent. Really, they were really bad responses. The only good responses were the ones that supported his view. All the others were, well, they were very rude, I thought. The Catholic Church in Australia has even funded many adult stem cell research programs. In a cardinal, in, sorry, in a Vatican translation of the address of Benedict XVI, gave September 16, 2006, to the participants in the symposium on stem cells, what future for therapy, organised by the Pontifical Academy for Life, Pope Benedict said that a good result can never justify intrinsically unlawful means. Further, he said that when science is applied to the alleviation of suffering, when it discovers and when it discovers new resources, it shows two faces rich in humanity. Through the sustained ingenuity invested in research and through the benefit announced to all who are afflicted by sickness. Catholic Church is not against science. In this light, somatic, um, sorry, that's another word uh, uh, to refer to adult stem cells. In this light, adult stem cell research also deserves approval and encouragement when it fills when it combines scientific knowledge, the most advanced technology in the biological field, and, and ethics that postulate respect for the human being at every stage of his or her existence. Further said, may I also point out that in the face of frequently unjust accusations of insensitivity addressed to the church, her constant support for research dedicated to the care of diseases and to the good of humanity throughout her 2,000-year-old history. Before I was going to give this talk, I was thinking of giving a talk on science and religion. 
as science and religion, not science or religion. If there has been any resistance, and if there still is, it was and is to those forms of research that provide for the planned suppression of human beings who already exist. This is Pope Benedict talking. Even if they have not yet been born. Research in such cases, irrespective of efficacious therapeutic results, is not truly at the service of humanity. And furthermore, he makes no bones about the fact that there's a problem with embryonic stem cell research. I would like to repeat here what I have already wrote some time ago. Here there is a problem that we cannot get around. No one can dispose of human life. An insurmountable limit to our possibilities of doing and of experimenting must be established. In other words, we must establish an ethical framework. The goal of human beings should not only be sought in universally valid goals, but also in how we achieve them. I guess I'll paraphrase that as the end does not justify the means. Now, there was a business in the media about Cardinal Pell. In the media, it was reported that Cardinal Pell was going to excommunicate Catholics. Cardinal Pell made no mention of excommunicating Catholics who voted for the legislation. But in response to a question, he did not rule out the possibility that they might be refused communion. What he, what Archbishop Hickey said was actually confused with what Cardinal Pell said. Archbishop Hickey was reported as saying that Catholic MPs who voted for the legislation should not take communion. In an answer to a question, he did not rule out the possibility of excommunication. I don't think he can rule out the possibility of excommunication. Importantly, neither Cardinal Pell nor Archbishop Hickey raised in the first instance the refusal of communion or excommunication. They mentioned the possibility. Rather, they simply responded vaguely to the interrogation of others. I guess they could have handled, handled the interview a bit better. Okay. Now, I've put down a few samples of roughly what the media is saying. Okay. This is this is roughly what what the media is saying. It's showing everything on the screen. Uh, stem, cell, stem cell research is impeded by those who believe that human life starts at conception. Well, we've already pointed out this is a scientific and medical certainty. It does, it does start at conception. Right? And the general response I've seen in the media from the scientists is no comment. I'm not going to comment on that. But I want to because I want to do the research. What the Catholic Church says is... Scientific research is meant to be in the service of humanity. And the embryo is scientifically and medically a human life and should never be destroyed. Now what this means, basically, is that the supposedly anti-science Catholic Church is now one of the few remaining supporters of a basic scientific truth. And this is probably maybe seen as quite ironic by very many people who believe the Catholic Church is anti-science. Okay, I'll briefly describe cloning, as briefly as I can. Cloning is a technique that results in a living embryo with genetic material almost identical to that of the parent's organism, 
I say the parent organism because it could be an animal or a human being. The first reported animal that was cloned in 1952 was a tadpole. Dolly the sheep is probably the most famous clone that we know about, the first mammal. Dolly was born in 1997 after 277 eggs were used for cloning. Only one embryo survived to adulthood. It survived to six years of age, about half a regular lifespan. Dolly was put down due to lung cancer and crippling arthritis, one of the problems with with, um, cloning. Dolly gave birth to six lambs, however, and all the lambs seemed to be healthy. So Dolly was a valid sheep life, I guess. <laughs> the method commonly used is called somatic cell nuclear transfer. This is referred to the media all the time, which is why I'm saying it. It's sometimes, um, sometimes short to SCNT, somatic cell nuclear transfer. And this has been used to clone a variety of animals since, including sheep, cats, rhesus monkeys, cattle, horses, Dogs, and no doubt other animals that I haven't heard about. Oh, I've seen in the 1980s biological textbooks, <coughs> you know, year-over-year frogs that they said were cloned. Do you know what textbooks used to be in the early 80s? Early 80s, well, it was in 1952 that a tadpole was cloned. Um, so it's very likely it was the same method, somatic cell nuclear transfer, but they're using it all the time. It's the only current artificial method by which we do cloning of life forms like this. If you're talking about bacteria and viruses, you're talking about something else. Advanced cell technologies produced the first human clone in November 2001. However, many eggs were used and only one divided into six cells before stopping. It was genetically dysfunctional and stopped. So it's been done. It's already been done. However, clones such as Dolly, born by SNT, are not perfect copies of the parent organism. Cloning is done of the nuclear material of a person's cell. However, there is DNA outside of the nuclear material in the mitochondria, as it's called. And this is not cloned. So frequently, these clones contain genetic defects, as we found with Dolly and so many other clones since. Okay, now in this slide, I'll basically describe the cloning process. Just go through it briefly. You start off with a sheep, the organism to be cloned. This is like Dolly the sheep. Now, stem cells are, sorry, cells are taken out of the sheep. And the nucleus is removed, so that red bit is, is removed, we're seeing this nucleus. It actually doesn't look quite as circular as that. Now, the outside of the egg is discarded, it is no longer needed. Now we have here an unfertilized egg cell from another sheep. I believe they actually used a black sheep at the time. And they remove the nucleus from that. And you can imagine what happens now. They basically use this to remove the nucleus, and then they fuse the two, the nucleus from here, and the egg, which has got no nucleus, they fuse them, then they stimulate it with an electric shock. It's like a practice on experiment. And then hopefully it'll start dividing into a whole bunch of cells. It'll, it'll still be one organism, a whole bunch of cells. 
and then, and then they implant it into another sheep, and voila, you have a clone after 27 attempts. When it's implanted, is it implanted in the embryo or in the um, uterus, or is it implanted? Um, this is an embryo now. This is an embryo. And this is implanted into the uterus. Okay, this is what I was... This is the name I was using before. Somatic cell nuclear transfer. This is the method which is used to perform cloning. <coughs> now, in the media, it is, some, it is frequently been referred to as somatic cell nuclear transfer or therapeutic cloning. They sometimes talk about reproductive cloning. They're all cloning. It's all the same technique. Many scientists prefer not to use the term cloning at all. And instead, um, choose to follow what the International Society of Stem Cell Research I mentioned them before, they had a conference here last month. The International Society of Stem Cell Research's recommendation was to replace the term therapeutic cloning with somatic cell nuclear transfer. It sounds so much better. Now, the terms reproductive cloning have been used. Reproductive cloning is currently banned at the moment in New South Wales, even with the current amended legislation. This is cloning with the attempt to reproduce. It's exactly the same process as I mentioned. Now, therapeutic cloning is cloning for research. It's cloning with the attempt to harvest the stem cells, extract the stem cells from the embryo at some stage, usually from four days to about 14 days. That's what is allowed in the current legislation in animals from four to 12 weeks. And this is usually for research purposes. Many failed attempts occur at this. Um, for the for Dolly the sheep, 277 eggs were used. They've since, since fine-tuned the process to about 200 eggs. In humans, um, as I mentioned, advanced cell technologies have done this. Um, they, they use quite a few eggs. I'm not quite sure how many. And it's divided uh, three times and then it was aborted because of genetic defects. This is what happens most of the time with cloning. It causes genetic defects. They were lucky they actually got it to the right. The estimate is that um, the success rate will be a bit under 1% for humans based on the way it's done in animals. And once again, the process is exactly the same. The only difference is time. Okay. This is unethical. The process of cloning is unethical. And not least, of course, because it requires the destruction of the human embryo, which is living living human being. And not just one either. There will be many human embryos that will be destroyed. Genetic instability. This is a big problem with cloning at the moment. Clone cells give rise to genetic abnormalities because reprogramming of genes proceeds abnormally from the cloning process, partly because not all the DNA material is moved across. Partly also because it is, an unnatural, it is an unnatural process. Imprinting. While the use of some, um, cloning technology could decrease risks of immune reactions, this, this is part of the reason. One of the reasons why they want to do cloning is because it will reduce rejection of material. 
So while cloning could decrease risk of immune reactions, this area of research minimises the importance of imprinting or influences of the mitochondrial DNA on how this, the embryo forms. This is a huge difference. This is why they've had so many problems with cloning. High failure rate. As I've mentioned, it's a high failure rate. Not just simply of the initial process, of the actual cloning process, the somatic cell nuclear transfer, of coming to term and genetic instabilities later on in, in the organism. It requires many eggs. And this is one other part of the big problem. Talking about cloning human embryos, you're talking about egg harvesting on a massive scale. Because it is so, such an inefficient process, and we would need to have a new cloned embryo, if we were going to use embryonic stem cell research, we would have to do cloning so that the material matches the genetic material of the patient. We would have to create a new one for every single person. That is a lot of eggs. The most common source of eggs today are eggs that are produced and in excess of the clinical need for IVF treatments. There aren't that many of those. 5% of women suffer ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and need to be hospitalised. This is in first world countries. I have to think what it's like in third world countries. Uh, problems include bloating, vomiting, shortness of breath, blood clots and organ failure. There have been no fatalities in Australia yet. There have been in the States. Having cases of significant blood clotting, it can lead to death and may increase the risk of ovarian cancer. Now, this doesn't sound as bad as it could because I actually got this from an IVF clinic themselves. I actually found out what information they gave about it. So they were trying to make it less scary. Side effects include bleeding, pain, infertility, and not to mention possible reproductive cancers later in life. We don't know enough about it yet to know how many cancers it does cause. So people talk about informed consent with, with IVF and IVF treatments and egg harvesting. However, it's such a poorly understood area. There is no informed consent. And furthermore, as you can possibly imagine, egg harvesting networks have been set up in various countries. Who, what woman would want to go through that in this country? So you get the eggs from other countries. Yes, she does. She's told about it and she can make a decision regarding it in Australia. In other countries, uh, in US and America, I believe it's the same. In places like um, Romania, they don't have that option. That's one of the areas in which they have a massive egg harvesting trade going. So already egg harvesting networks have been set up in various countries. Now, I thought I would add a few other things to this um, regarding how this debate has actually happened. Four years ago, the parliament was, was told, permit research on embryos left over from IVF. Well, they are just going to waste. But draw the line at, you know, um, uh, prohibit the creation of human embryos for, for, client, for research purposes. So basically they were saying, permit research on embryos left over from IVF, for they are just going to waste. Don't allow cloning, so prohibit cloning. 
Today, the Parliament is told, notice that in fact that we already permit the creation and destruction of embryos for the purpose of helping people have families. Since it is normal practice in IVF to create embryos that are going to be implanted, surely it's unfair to ban their creation and destruction to help people with other medical problems. That, pri that privileges infertility over other problems. So move the legislative line down a bit and permit the creation and destruction of embryos, not just to overcome fertility, but to overcome medical problems, basically embryonic stem cell research. That has been the argument to push through embryonic stem cell research and cloning. So we are now allowed to do cloning in Australia. In another four years, I predict the parliament will be told, well, we permit the creation and destruction of embryos to help people who have medical problems, including problems with infertility. So cloning and IVF. But some people still can't overcome the infertility problems. Surely it's unfair to prevent them from using modern techniques of embryo formation to have a family. This privileges one response to infertility over another. So therefore, let's allow reproductive cloning. This, lots of people are predicting this, especially <coughs> lawyers. They're predicting that reproductive cloning is going to happen. Especially good. Lawyers. Lots, lots of law books that actually talk about medical situations say that it's only a matter of time before this is committed. The egg harvesting is a secondary medical issue. I've recently found out about a Romanian clinic that buys eggs from very, very poor women. Uh, they pay them about $200 at the moment for an egg. And they repeatedly do it. For cigarettes and things like that, rent, clothes. It is creating a huge problem at the moment, and governments are talking about um, putting constraints on the egg harvesting trade. Now, I thought I would talk about the successes in the area at the moment. Embryonic stem cells, no successes at the moment. None at all. So, a few adult stem cell successes. They've already been used in the treatment of over 70 different diseases. Heart disease. There are a couple of companies working in this area. Mesoblast, <coughs> the company I mentioned before. They're partnered with an American company and they just finished some major trials in which, um, well, it was, a, it was a success. I don't know how much of a success it was. I do know about some of the other trials that were done though. Therabisai is a company in Israel. They have more than 100 patients. 80% get increased heart function. 80% of the patients. The remaining 20% are no worse off. This is actually a very good facility. The one in Israel is actually very, very well monitored. And another trial, 14 patients in Brazil showed 17 to 24% increased oxygen capacity after implantation of their own stem cells. No negatives. Except for the fact that uh, two or three of them, there was no effect. 28 heart attacks, patients in 2003, 26 demonstrated higher levels of heart pumping capability. The amount of dead tissue in the subjects decreased by 20%. So it's a little bit, it's not much of the moment. But 20% is a lot to someone who's had a heart attack. What do they do? Do they just implant the stem cells into the, into the localised area or what? Uh, well, there are a number of different procedures depending on who's actually doing it. Uh, these these guys, um, 
Ferrovitae. Oh, sorry, no, this, this wasn't Ferrovitae, this was someone else. Um, what, the, way, the way a lot of the people do it is they insert it into the heart with, with a catheter. They just simply put a catheter into the heart using um, microsurgery, and then they just uh, feed the adult stem cells in. It's a very primitive process, but it works, because the adult stem cells know where to go and they know what to do. This is one of the big problems, I just don't know how it does it. Uh, there's another technique that, uh, that another company is um, doing for people who have open heart surgery. They also implant some of their adult stem cells with the hope of increased heart function. That's currently in trials at the moment. Obviously, inserting the adult cells by a catheter is even better. Now, diabetes is one of the areas which it is touted that embryonic stem cells are going to solve in, you know, tomorrow. They're just going to solve them. However, type 1 diabetes has been treated with adult stem cells already. The way it was done was their immune system was suppressed. Then they had a blood stem cell transplant, very similar to the um, transplant operation I just described before. But it was peripheral blood stem cells, so it wasn't from the bone marrow, it wasn't a painful bone extraction process. 15 patients were in the trial. During follow-up, 14 patients became insulin-free. So out of 15, 14 patients became insulin-free between 1 to 35 months later. Four for at least 12 months. Sorry, one for 35 months, four for 12 months, and seven patients for at least six months. And there were two late responders for one and two months, respectively. That's not bad, 14 out of 15. Growing heart valves, there's a doctor in England at the moment who's making big strides in the area of growing human heart valves outside the body, which is ideal for people who need human heart valves. I know someone, well, sorry, I know of someone who's got a pig heart valve in their heart, and they need to take, to take, uh, um, they need to take immunosuppressant drugs all the time as a result of it. If you could instead put in a heart valve that was created from scratch that this Sir Magdi Yadu is doing in England. I've got a story about eye disease which is finished. Michael May, a business owner in Davis, California, was exposed to a chemical explosion as a child. So as a child. He lost his left eye and became blind in his right. So there wasn't much he can do about his left eye, he'd lost it, unfortunately. Forty-three years later he regained his sight in the right eye after a stem cell transplant complemented by a corneal transplant. Five months following the operation, May had required limited vision and within two years had recovered his sight in his right eye. That's pretty impressive. Even more impressive, John Newton had a successful stem cell transplantation. He was diagnosed with a rare eye disorder known as Stevens-Johnson syndrome. He lost his sight as a teenager and was blind for 30 years. This is 30 years later. On January 2001, at age of 46, he underwent a stem cell operation in New Jersey. Less than 80 months later, he had 20-30 vision. Another story which is interesting, a jewellery designer by the name of, of Sean Smith. He was blinded after an, an acid-filled beaker exploded in his face, in his face and, and blinded him. After 10 years of blindness, he sought consultation from Dr. Edward Holland at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. After their meeting, Smith went through with a stem cell transplantation. And this is the interesting thing. His half-brother donated the cells. 
which were implanted into his eyes. After his completion, Smith had reacquired his vision. Now, this is interesting because his half-brother donated cells. There was no rejection. There was no need for immunosuppressants. Don't know if he can take immunosuppressants for a transplant in the eye, but he didn't need them. Now, let's boundary. From May 2006 to January 2007, 25 patients with spinal cord injury were treated at a hospital in Ecuador. 15 patients, 60%, could stand up after. 10 patients, 40% could walk on the parallels with braces. 7% could walk without braces. And 4, which is 16%, could walk with crutches. Patients demonstrate improvements in sensitivity, mobility, bladder sensation. This is pretty impressive. Really, really impressive stuff. Parkinson's. Dr. Dennis Turner, who was a doctor who had a stem cell transplant, was injected in, into his brain. The retinal neural stem cells were injected with a daily cocktail treatment of neurotropic factors. The, the neurotropic factors they basically encouraged the growth of the stem cells. Now, his story was that in early 1991, he suffered extreme shaking of the right side of his body, stiffness in his gait and movements. After some years of medication, he developed a fluctuation and poor response to, to the main drug that was used to treat Parkinson's. This made daily activities needing the use of both hands impossible, such as putting on contact lenses. His disability prevented him from using his right arm. Since after having the stem cells injected, his Parkinson's, systems, his Parkinson's systems began to improve. His trembling got less. To all appearances, it was gone. Only slightly appearing, he became upset. His doctor had him tested by a neurologist who could not find any problem with him, didn't know he had Parkinson's. He's now enjoying activities that he had no hope of doing before. However, last year, so this was done in 1991. Last year, after four years of being virtually symptom-free, his Parkinson's symptoms started improving. So it's not perfect. However, that's almost, what, 15 years of improvement. That's pretty good. Because of his improvement, he was able to indulge in his passion for big game photography. He actually spoke at the uh, US Senate uh, recently. Um, while we had had the debate here, the US was having a debate about lifting embryonic stem cell restrictions. Luckily, um, President Bush voted against it. And he, he did a number of interesting things when he did that as well. He had beside him a patient who was born with spina bifida, who had a stem cell treatment. Specifically, she had a new bladder that had been grown from scratch. Basically, what it, well, not completely scratch, they got an adult stem cell from her bladder that was dysfunctional. They created a framework for the bladder. They cultivated the adult stem cell. They cultivated it with these neurotropic factors. And eventually, it grew a bladder. Or, uh, well, they actually had a framework for it. Yeah. So it was, I guess it's a 
different type of petrol dish. Then they transplanted the bladder, and she now has full sensations. Well, she has full mobility in the bladder. This is, it sounds pretty minor to someone who doesn't have bladder problems, but it's a big thing. Now, one way to find out how effective embryo stem cells are at the moment is to look at clinicaltrials.gov.au. Sorry, clinicaltrials.gov. This is a US site that talks about clinical trials all around the world. If you look for embryonic stem cells, two entries come up. These are scientists who are um, doing embryonic stem cells in mice with the intention to do human clinical trials. However, it's just a side note in the article. That's why it comes up. However, there are 743 trials being done with human adult stem cells. Um, there is one thing I'll, I'll read briefly. I, I, I get this email at the moment called Cell Therapy News. It's very interesting. It talks about, it's been mostly talking about stem cell treatments lately. I'll just give you a brief idea of the main headlines so you can see what is really happening in the area. Researchers at the McMaster Stem Cell and Cancer Research Institute show that human embryonic stem cells can actually produce distinctive niche cells. These are human embryonic stem cells that can produce distinctive niche cells which then help keep the cells alive. This is interesting. Scientists with the International Stem Cell Initiative have identified a set of markers that can be used to identify different human embryonic stem cell lines. They can't tell them apart at the moment, unfortunately. It's a problem. That's interesting. There's no therapies in that. However, the biotechnology company has just finished a trial that shows that adult stem cells show promise for peripheral vascular disease. Peripheral vascular disease causes, well, is the result of 100 patients in the States losing a limb each year. They've just completed a trial. And, and some of the features of the trial, the 12 weeks primary symptoms including low limb pain and coldness were significantly improved in 137, 90% of the patients. Limb ulcers improved in 86.8% of the patients. A different group, these are all different groups. 48% of another group with limb gangrene improved. And that's all the groups. So this is another trial that was done. They're just mentioning here. Another trial, mesoblast, mentioned again. Mesoblast, as I mentioned, is right at the forefront of adult stem cell research and they're an Australian company. They move forward with the next phase of clinical trials using off-the-shelf stem cells. These are the stem cells that can be used in anyone. So I can donate stem cells. I can go to the blood bank and give blood and they can, and, and they can extract the stem cells from my blood and I can say, yes, I want to donate these to Joe. So they're going forward with trials. But also mentioned in the article that they successfully finished a heart stem cell trial where they injected these stem cells into the heart. Stem cell clinical trials to begin at Walden Medical Center in Salt Lake City. Red tape has held up the work since 2004, but stem cell researchers are ready to begin clinical trials for new stem cell therapy at the Veterans Hospital. It involves stem cells from the placenta. These are also adult stem cells. I won't go through all of these, I'll just mention one more. 
Um, a company is adding three more clinical cells to critical basically peripheral vascular disease again. This is, is another way of saying it. adding three more sites because they've had so much success in, in, their, in their previous clinical trials, they are now expanding it to a lot more hospitals so they can all, all benefit from the research. Now, a lot of these clinical trials are just starting or are halfway through, and there are a few that are almost finished. There is a company called Cytori Therapeutics, which has plans to launch the device at the end of this year in England. And what the device does is that you extract stem cells from the fat. The idea is that lots of people have got fat. So, <laughs> so they use a liposuction technique to extract the fat, and they, and they cultivate the stem cells from that fat. They regrow them, and then they inject them back into the body. And the first use of it is going to be for, for women who have had um, breast cancer and have lost part of the breast, and they're going to re regrow part of the breast using the stem cells. They've had success in previous trials, and so they're going to be launching in England at the end of this year. That is pretty impressive. Now, that is their plan, so I don't know if they actually will or not. I saw an update on their progress uh, about three weeks ago, and everything seemed to be on track. So, and also, um, Ireland is um, planning on putting a regulatory framework for stem cells. So that's pretty much that pretty much covers um, all the current therapies that are happening in the area. Just just to briefly summarise, the political argument over stem cell research is more of an argument about government subsidy. They want money to do research because they want money to do research. It's not going to produce therapies. A more cynical view, which I'm sure I don't hold, is that a group of scientists and their business allies want government subsidies to defeat competition for more effective, less expensive umbilical cord blood. Umbilical cord blood is currently the most promising area of adult stem cells because it's such a large supply of it. While the potency and success of adult stem cell treatments are becoming evident, treatments using embryonic stem cells have not produced any clinical successes. Rather, embryonic stem cell treatments tend to create tumours in numerous animal studies. The public should ask why the media do not cover such results. I've asked myself why many times. There have been so many successes. In a world with limited funds for research, why are we so arguing about unproven and dangerous embryonic stem cell treatments? When treatments using adult stem cells are today producing results for real patients. That is my talk. Thank you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Paul Bazanas. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.